Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Though the topic of immigration has been controversial throughout most of our nation's history and continues, sadly, there is no denying how much immigrants have added to American culture. We address some of those contributions in our ongoing series, Culture Crash, with director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theatre Company. Today, we'll learn about essential outside influences on the modern American field of public relations. First, the Alliance Theatre is pitching a tent on the plaza of the Woodruff Arts Center. With CDC safety protocols and socially distanced seating, the new series is called Under the Tent. Director and actor Tanache Kajisi-Bolden is with us now. She also holds the title of Bold Women's Leadership Circle Artistic Director Fellow or the Alliance. Tanache, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I'm so excited to be here, and especially that we are talking about live performances. Oh my goodness, can you believe this? I am pinching myself. So many of us are eager to share in-person theater again, and Under the Tent has now added new performances featuring jazz, poetry, a new production of Hamlet by the Tiny Theatre Company. What can you tell us about these shows and why you chose them? I'm so glad you started with that. There are our guest tent artist series. They're part of the tent series, but they're our guest artists. And so we were really motivated last summer. We had several listening circles with our artists of color. Um, and we're really inspired to be more intentional and creative in sharing our resources with local artists of color. This, this is what it means to be a value-led organization, right? Valuing local artists, local stories, and expanding all the ways that Atlantan stories can be shared and with different audiences. And so sharing our resources shows up in not just sharing maybe rehearsal space, but performance space and 
casting and designer lists, among many other things. And so when we found out that we were going to be able to produce live performances under the tent, we saw this as a great opportunity to share the stage with some local artists and art organizations of color. And as we were thinking about the planning of it and what this offer was going to be, we really thought it was and believed it was important that our invitation came at no expense to our guest artists and that we work to remove any foreseeable obstacles for their support base. And so the artists are going to be coming and they'll, they have a few evenings that will be performing the work of their choice. And we will be supporting them with our full production crew and our front of house staff, as well as, you know, marketing promotional materials. And it was just really important that they have full ownership and authorship of how the resources and the revenue are distributed. So we're not the middleman in this. Everything goes directly to them. And as you said, these artists that we've selected are just so exciting. We have Tyrone Jackson and his jazz group, and they will be performing an Atlanta jazz revival. And it will be this old classics and standard songs, but with a modern twist. And if anybody has listened to Tyrone perform, I mean, he is just such a profoundly exciting and dynamic and welcoming artist who takes you on such a beautiful journey through his work and the stories that he tells in between. And it's mm -hmm. just going to be an incredible incredible night. So that's one of our guest artists. The other guest artist is Sister Omelica, and she is a uh, spoken word storyteller and uses African drumming. And it's just this multifaceted story of her journey as, as an artist through dance and original music and songs and spoken word. I've seen Sister Melika perform a number of times. And when I tell you that you just leave feeling affirmed, you know, that she is just so uplifting in her, in the way that she speaks life into and reflects on what has happened in the past and is able to contextualize the present, but frames and uplifts the possibilities of tomorrow, all in this way of holding on to tradition and culture, and then the tiny theater company. And let me tell you, as, as, an, as an actor, as a director, and a theater maker, these folks have my heart. Sid Prather is the artistic director and founder of the tiny theater company. And she set out to create a theater company that provides safe space for Black artists and activates storytelling to heal and uplift the community through these positive representations of Black artists. What is so powerful is that, and it, <laughs> I'm stuttering only because I, as I think about them, I think about starting out as an actor and you know, you're you wanting to get work done and not always finding opportunities. And what Sid and her ensemble have done is said, we're not gonna wait for opportunities come to us. We're gonna make and create them ourselves. And so, their theater company takes, usually it's Shakespearean pieces and uses that as the blueprint of reimagining that story. And it is told in such a creative way based on just such little resources that they usually have. They find the most exciting and radical entry points into the work 
and it brings new audiences with them. And so to be able to give them the opportunity to perform in a space that could expose them to a greater audience is, is just really thrilling. And it's a gift to us to see that. Who wrote the music for Tiny Theatre's Hamlet? So there isn't music in it. The sound of music that isn't is all created by the ensemble. So I would actually give full credit to Alexis Woodard, who is the director of the show. And together, she and the ensemble created the sounds and the musicality inside of it. But it's all actor generated, which is so exciting. And I got to also plug that Alexis is also one of our Spellman Leadership Fellows this year. So it was a wonderful connection that we wanted to celebrate this theater and that Alexis happened to be directing this production of Hamlet. And it's also starring Justinia Ingrams, who is playing Hamlet, and Rayon Hunter, who's playing Ophelia. She is also a Spellman intern. Justinia is our other Spellman fellow. The Alliance Theater's website shares a declaration of your commitment to racial equity and representation, citing a list of demands made by We See You White American Theater. Mm -hmm. It's a transparent acknowledgement of the historical lack of Black and people of color voices in theater. What more can you tell us about this movement within the theater community and how the Alliance finds its role in it? Yeah, I think For the Alliance, what we have to do was say that no matter what great work we felt we had already been achieving, that there's always more work to do. And to be a value-led organization, we cannot just be performative in that stance, but we have to actually acknowledge where we didn't do as well as we should have. And one of those ways is about having radical access and full transparency in how decisions are made, how we season plan, who is in positions of leadership, and how we decentralize some of those leadership decisions and diversify it. When we talk about diversity, diversity is what we see, right? Seeing that there are representations of different ages and genders and sexual orientation and socioeconomic status, race, religious beliefs, And when we talk about inclusion, it's about how we make people feel. So it is not just how you feel when you see the work on our stage, but how do you feel when you come into our space? Do you feel welcome? And for those people who have not felt welcome, we need to interrogate what are we doing? What are the obstacles that we have intentionally or unintentionally set up that have made our community feel that this is not their stage? This is not their town hall. One of many commitments is more inclusion, more diversity, having more folks at the table as we're talking about what are the shows that we wanted to do, what are the programs, having ongoing relationships with different community partners, not just show by show, but throughout the year. You know, we don't want to wait for the show that is about an Asian American community to then engage with them. We should be engaging with them when we're doing working, when we're doing Tony Stone. It it should not be play or program specific to connect with our community. 
Tony Stone being the play about this astonishing woman baseball player. And that's one of the shows included in this year's season, correct? Yes, that will be in our season uh, next year. The show that will be our big tent series show will be the musical Working that is adapted by Stephen Schwartz and Nina Faso. Yeah, I wanted to ask about some of the necessary programming changes you had to make because of COVID-19 protections. Tony Stone, you said, will be in the 2021-22 season. What is it about this season's newly scheduled plays and concerts? Make them the right fit for this moment. Yeah, so we had to embrace the fact that this season is going to be different, right? And so the challenge was that we couldn't perform indoors. And so we had to see that as, well, what is the opportunity that that offers? What does the opportunity of being outdoors, what could we deliver that would be exciting and different? And we have seen our other arts partners be really successful in concerts and and also the success of the Christmas Carol Drive-In that was so beautifully received and curated that we knew that a musical would be the safest way to go. And certainly this particular musical working really speaks to this really shifting world that we are in. And it was really important that we do a show that it doesn't take advantage of the moment that we have all been trudging through, but is responsive to it. And how are we learning from this? How are we growing and how can we connect more? And that at the core of it, it was really important that the invitation side of all of our shows was that we, how do we help to see ourselves and each other clearer? So this musical working, what is amazing about the show, and it's, it's a fantastic show in and of itself, but I think the exciting ingredient is our director, Tamla Woodard, who is just so profoundly committed to doing work that doesn't just sit in a community, but lives, breathes, communicates within that specific community and is responsive to the stories that, that Atlanta needs to hear. And so she, together with Stephen Schwartz, have crafted an experience in this musical that is uniquely and profoundly Atlanta. Mm. You will not see the show anywhere else. And as an Atlantan, you will come in and feel seen. You will feel thought about. There'll be a new song. There's uh, beautiful monologues that just communicate worth and the worth of effort and time and who we are when we're working, who are we when we're not working and what does that cost? And it's just a exciting, beautiful, uplifting, provocative piece of full of yearning and leaning towards your fullest potential. Oh, it sounds so exciting. And how thrilling to have Stephen Schwartz, the composer, working with the director on this specific production. Working initially was based on Studs Terkel's oral history collection, wasn't it? Yes. And so so many of the monologues and, and the songs, they explore what it is like to have work be meaningful across all walks of life. And so several of those are still intact with some 
script changes to respond to the moment we're in right now, but it is still recognizable, essential workers, right? And we all have raised our awareness and profound appreciation for what it means to be an essential worker and who identifies that way and how work can be so essential to our sense of self and place and community. Yes. Alliance Theatre Anywhere is a place to watch online streaming performances of last year's productions. Tanache, what was it like staging shows for streaming only without live audiences? Gosh, you know, what we do in the theater is all about this very tactile, in-person experience, right? There's this craftiness, this handmadeness element of it that we lean into and it's exciting to see things happen in live, in person that you didn't imagine because you know there's no tricks, right? It's almost like, how do we see this art without the tricks? And with film, you know that tricks can be made, can happen to make magic, right? And, and you love that. But when you're a theater maker, what we wanted to preserve was the handmadeness element of theater. How do we capture the way that we tell stories but just in this different medium. And so what we just kept reminding ourselves was story, story, story. Deepen the story, deepen the relationships. What is the story that we wanna tell? What is the connection we wanna make with our audience? And so it was a learning curve for a lot of folks. Our, our, Our production crew became the film crew and became ADs and, audio folk and (laughs) figured it out. And it was a really bonding opportunity for many of us cross-departmentally because many people were learning at a really quick rate. But what we also saw was while this might not be a huge revenue driving programming, it was really important that we stay in communication with our community that we find opportunities to keep our artists working. And it was exciting to see a lot of new new audiences check us out who otherwise would not have, either because of where they live or they just would not have come to see some of our work. Oh, Tanasha, whether seeing you on stage, seeing actors whom you've directed on stage, or knowing of your important work behind the scenes. It's always a joy to talk with you. Thank you so much. Lois, thank you. And thank you for keeping the good rumor about the wonderful work that's happening in Atlanta going. Actor and director Tanache Kajesu Bolden is the Bold Women's Leadership Circle Artistic Director Fellow for the Alliance Theater. The Under the Tent series begins on April 22nd with Working, a musical. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The challenge of promoting European culture to Americans ironically gave birth to what is considered a quintessentially American field, public relations. That's the topic we'll explore today in 
our ongoing series, Culture Crash. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company joins us now. Adam, welcome back. Lois, I'm so glad to be here. How does the field of public relations illustrate a blending of cultures, and what does Sigmund Freud have to do with it? So I'll start with a tiny bit of personal backstory here, Lois. For the last couple of years, my theater company has been trying to make a play about the history of public relations. So it is through that channel that I ended up learning all of this stuff. And it it was kind of a mind-blowing, like, first of all, I had never even considered what what are the origins of public relations. Turns out it's a totally American invention in many respects. And it has to do with the rise of media culture at the the turn of the last century, around the year 1900. Who knew? Exactly. So, but the the field has a few what you might call iconic or signature people in it. Obviously, like any field, there's a lot of contributors. But there are two giants in it that I think are worth talking about today. One is named Ivy Ledbetter Lee, who is a Georgian, and he lived from 1877 to 1934. And then the other giant of public relations was named Edward Bernays, Eddie Bernays, and he lived from 1891 to a very long life, 1995. Wow. And... Eddie Bernays, this is crazy, Lois, but Eddie Bernays is the double nephew of Sigmund Freud, meaning that brothers and sisters got married. So on both sides of Eddie Bernays's, you know, his in both on his mom's side and on his dad's side, nephew and niece. So he um, he while his family moved to America, the Freuds, they were Austrian Jews uh his his uncle and aunt stayed in Vienna and early in his life he had had a good amount of contact with his uncle Sigmund and was very Sigmund was very influential on his thinking so that's a, a quick overview to how I come to this work and and also uh who these two giants are and then we can start talking about some of the crazy and giant discoveries and innovations that they had in the field of public relations. Well, I want to go back to Freud. How did Bernays's approach to PR draw from the family business of exploring the subconscious? I think that throughout his career, we're talking about a world-class PR man. So you can imagine that once Freud was a name brand. Eddie Bernays never went into a meeting without mentioning, oh, by the way, I'm the nephew of... uh." (laughs) So, I mean, that's... And I think that was just good salesmanship. In in a larger sense, he was very uh, thoughtful about this idea of unconscious desires. And he... What that... What, what he pioneered in a way is he, he said that a lot of things out th- that when 
clients would come to him with a problem. They would say, you know, I'm not selling enough pork. My trucks don't aren't, uh, I've got a trucking business and we're not selling enough trucks. PR, he wasn't actually advertising those products. He was trying to understand the underlying problem of what would make those products sell the best. And so he would do some research and find uh, some of the challenges. And then what he would then do is wage a campaign to move the needle on the thought processes that le led to the kind of challenge. I'll give you a, a quick example. He, he, the cigarette companies came to him and said, you know, we're not having enough we, we look at our numbers and not enough women are smoking relative to men. It's a huge untapped market. So he did a bunch of research about what it was, what was inhibiting women from smoking. And he felt that uh, a lot of it had to do with social stigma and that his so first of all before we go any further this idea of sort of market research figuring out what the challenges were to the, the your underlying market problem is an innovation that he pioneered and then codified so he does this research he he comes up with a lot of the ideas around social stigma and then he says what we're going to do to attack the social stigma around it is tie it to something positive. The suffragette movement was big at the time. He had a kind of a feminist march for freedom that he led in New York and then was able to get huge amounts of press play across the country. And just coincidentally, in virtually every photograph, there was a woman smoking or a line about how we, sh you know, we are free to do what we want, and that includes smoking. And then he had subsequent campaigns similar, and that ultimately was able to move the needle on public perception of smoking. Now, that's, that is an example, but you can imagine that played out across a nearly 80-year career in public relations. Oh, my. Now, it was in the promotion of arts and culture that Bernays refined his ideas. Would In you fact, talk you're right. Before he even started thinking about how he was going to use his uncle Sigmund's um, theories, he as is a um, he's a young Cornell grad. He's 23 years old, and he's got a little bit of the immigrant moxie you know what am i going to do to make my way in the world he had a little bit of a, that sort of first generation chip on his shoulder so he really wanted to make it big and he was what they would call an advanced man or a press man and he would show up in a new market and kind of lay out why a touring company or a play or whatever it was needed to needed to be bought by that local market. So there was a whole, that was the field. It wasn't, it was people showing up and trying to get an advertisement in the local papers. And But like I said, he had this kind of grand vision of changing the way things were done and got himself hired as the press man for 
the Ballet Russe. And this was a very big deal. The Ballet Russe, what was a very groundbreaking troupe put together by a producer named Sergei Diaghilev in Russia. And it changed ballet. They hired composers like Eric Satie and famously Stravinsky. And they created these ballets that became the, the modern repertoire. And they were a huge hit in Europe, huge blockbuster. And they decided they were going to do an American tour, but this is where Bernays starts refining some of these techniques. Even at an early age, he realized he can't just go and put up an ad for the ballet russe. He's got this underlying problem. Americans don't know much about ballet, and what they do know isn't very marketable. It's not, you know, they sort of perceive it as a highly feminine, not that fun thing to go. So the idea of getting men to buy tickets to the ballet was a big stretch. And Adam, when you said that Bernays was hired to do advance work, this meant travel? This wasn't just New York publicity? Absolutely. These were tours. So, you know, in, the, um, in this era, your, your advance man or your press man would be part of the touring team of a troupe. And they would usually, the, their responsibilities would be many. They'd, part of it, depending on the tour, would be everything from hotel bookings to placement in local newspapers, to advertisements, to making sure that the lettering on the marquee was correct. But this is, you know, he had a grander vision. He didn't want to he didn't want to be out there arguing with local tour managers about marquee lettering size. He wanted to invent a field. And this problem of how am I going to change the perception of European ballet in America seemed to him to be a lot more interesting than, you know, how many rooms is the ballet russe going to need in Wichita, if you see what I mean. So he did some things that nobody had done before in that context. He created a 20 page, actually, sorry, it was a 40 page booklet of pre-written articles about different members of the Ballet Russe as sort of celebrities, and then also things that were not directly related to the company about ballet in general as being this incredibly masculine art. And what he would do is he would show up and he would hand this booklet to local newspapers, and they had a huge amount of pre-written content that they didn't even have to worry about. And they started to publish these things pretty much verbatim. He took one of the stars of the company. He felt that she had very sinewy, snake-like movements. And he was keenly aware that the trend of the press now was to run photographs. And he understood the power of the image better than most. And so he took this dancer to the New York Zoo. They rented a snake, a totally harmless snake, and they draped it on her. And they took pictures of this ballerina with the snake slithering around her. 
and the the articles ran that it was a dangerous cobra that she had studied and then began to move like and then had charmed with her <laughs> snake-like ways and this article again verbatim ran across the country so much so that while this was just an idea of his she started showing up at touring sites with a snake draped around her neck. So again, you know, this, you can sort of see the influence of Uncle Sigmund on, you know, some of the uh, Freudian connections he's already yeah. made. Yeah, and you, I'm still back at there are harmless snakes. <laughs> right, exactly. So a couple of things about this. The invention of the entertainment press release. We'll talk about the invention of the corporate press release in a bit, but this idea of a press pack that travels with the company, total innovation. This idea that you solve an underlying market problem instead of marketing the thing itself, total innovation. And these were things that he ended up refining through his career. Director Adam Copeland of Flying Carpet Theater Company. We'll be back with more of our culture crash discussion about PR after a break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Adam Copeland, director of Flying Carpet Theater Company. In this segment of our Culture Crash series, we're exploring the history of public relations, a modern field born in the U.S. Here, Adam talks about the pioneer of public relations, Edward Bernays, and his work with the opera singer Enrico Caruso. Right after he worked for the Ballet Russe and, had, and did it spectacularly and successfully, young guy, he gets the job being the press man, advanced man for Enrico Caruso. Now, Enrico Caruso, the great Caruso, huge star in Europe, but I think he got the job because similar issue. He wasn't that scale of celebrity in the U.S. So what does Bernays do? He, similar strategy with pre-written articles, but one of the ways that he pushes Caruso is he has this insight that celebrity culture sort of feeds on itself that if you treat somebody like a celebrity you write about them like a celebrity 
you um, enhance all of their celebrity characteristics, then the public is completely wowed by it. So I think, you know, way anticipating Paris Hilton and the sort of celebutants of our era, what he did was he took things and behaviors that seemed to him to be very extravagant or things that only a diva celebrity would do. And rather than look at those as quirky liabilities, he decided he was going to feature those in the press around Caruso. So Caruso's at this restaurant and uh, one of the windows is open and Caruso decides, oh my God, uh, if I catch a draft, it's going to affect my voice. I won't sound as good. So Caruso hides under the table, which is kind of nutty. (laughs) Bernays turns it into an article. You know, he's so, his voice is so precious and he's, you know, such a, a, a figure of, of celebrity and quirkiness that, that this, you know, this, this article runs widely. Similarly, he goes to some hotel and he's not getting a good enough night's sleep. So he demands that the hotel stack three mattresses on itself and um, they do it for him. And again, Bernays is like, yeah, that, you know, it, well, in ordinary, for an ordinary human, this would just be totally annoying behavior. But if you can build a cult of celebrity, great. And so, again, articles about the, the diva who needs three mattresses to get his voice to absolute perfection. And so you can imagine there was article like this after article like this. Hmm. Now, can we return to the Atlantan? Absolutely. So Bernays is doing these campaigns. Bernays is launching his career in the teens, okay? The the Ballet Russe uh, tour is 1915. The um, Caruso tour is 1916. A few years before that, there was a similar pioneer of public relations, a man named Ivy Ledbetter Lee. Ivy Lee uh, was born in Georgia to a Methodist minister. And uh, like a good Methodist of the era, was educated a bit at Emory University, also went to Princeton, and then became a reporter. So this minister's son with high ethical standards goes into reporting and is kind of going and seeking out the truth. And these two, these two qualities ended up very much informing his approach to this new field. He went in a different direction and was more of a consultant to big business than um, Bernays was initially. His, his background from, the, a pre, from a journalist into a kind of big business consultant happened because he was so good at helping when businesses had crises, figuring out how best to crisis manage. So the field of crisis management PR really starts with Ivy Lee. I'll give you a few examples. In 1906, there was a train wreck in Atlantic City and a lot of people died. And it had to do with a malfunction in the in the, how the tracks were working that was highly technical but 
understandable to the to the staff at um, the railroad company, the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. So you have to understand, Lois, at the time, huge crises like this generated a lot of public anger, as they should and often do. You know, in the 1800s, 1900s, if there was some crisis, a big company would just, you know, either ignore it or completely sweep it under the rug or just straight up lie about it. So he said, you can't do this. Over time, everybody will find out and it will be worse for you in the long run. And so as soon as that wreck happened, he had the Pennsylvania Railroad research and figure out in the highly technical specifics of what had happened. And then he took that information and wrote a press release about how this accident had happened. And it included a level of kind of mea culpa and, and responsibility. And they, the New York Times ran the press release in 1906 verbatim. So this is really kind of the birth of a, a very different approach to corporate crisis management that, to his great credit, uh, involved a more honest approach with the public. Hmm. And he helped rehabilitate the Rockefeller family's image early in the 20th century, and that must have required a lot of work. <laughs> That's right. Well... Especially given the context, Lois, in 1913, uh, Standard Oil, one of the Rockefeller companies, was having a labor dispute with miners in Colorado, and it built to an ugly head, and the National Guard opened fire on uh, where a lot of the striking miners and their families were, and it killed 21 people, including women and children. And so the public justifiably was outraged and Rockefeller's reputation was sinking. And so Lee was brought in and the thought that he brought was, again, some notion of that that, that there had to be some level of awareness and accountability. Two, that... Rockefeller was notoriously shy and very uh, out of the public image, so it was very easy to build a caricature of him. Lee's approach was very different. He, He actually insisted that Rockefeller head to the site of the massacre. He insisted that Rockefeller meet with the miners, the striking miners, and the families who had just endured a loss. He insisted alongside that there would be stories and images of Rockefeller with his family who had a warm kind of with whom some members he had a warm relationship and we should point out this was before child labor laws yes in fact well it, this incident Howard Zinn the historian thinks of this Ludlow massacre incident as one of the major players in moving the needle towards labor awareness and a bunch of important labor laws. So this this is separate from its history as a kind of a in PR, it is an important moment in American labor history and and some of the um, rules and regulations around um, every, you know things like uh, 
how many hours a week somebody could work, child labor laws. Some of this is an outgrowth of this era. And so on the one hand, a lot of the press was incredibly negative and the the feelings were headed more towards the sympathy with the miners. To some degree, Lee's work served a little bit to rehabilitate at least the Rockefeller side of the story and presented Rockefeller as this human guy. The thing I didn't yet mention is all of this stuff that Lee encouraged Rockefeller to do, the meeting with the miners, the hanging out with his family. Lee hires a photographer and, a t in fact, a photographic team. And so for a month, there's a, a lot of images of Rockefeller doing these things that sort of build his humanity and sympathy. And then those articles are running all of the time. And it's also Lee starts a move that has hadn't happened really before. Up to then, philanthropy and the philanthropy of the very rich was seen as a very private endeavor. And Lee understood that for big corporations with mediocre public images, philanthropy could also be a humanizing thing so that he also started to promote the huge amount of uh, donor dollars that the Rockefellers gave. So, uh, you know, this is not me defending Standard Oil or the Rockefeller family. I'm just sort of talking about what Lee was able to do to counterbalance some of the negative images of the Rockefellers at the time. How does PR in the modern era differ from propaganda? I think both Lee and Bernays wrote articles and published and books about some of the underlying principles of their vision of PR. So we've talked a bunch about kind of the tools of mass media, photographs, images, now including, you know, video and streaming and all of these other tools. But before that, it, it was this was the time when there were these huge tools to reach huge audiences. So codifying the idea of attacking underlying perceptions, having a message that goes to the core of what the problem is, including market research or to figure this out, then pre-packaging a frame for the press to look at stuff, and that both of them felt that you your goal wasn't to say untrue things. It was to say true things that existed in a frame that worked for you. And that, that was a subtly different thing from propaganda of old. Their innovation partially had to do with the frame that we're going to put around something true as opposed to the lie that we're going to tell to counterbalance. Another thing that is a big innovation, we haven't talked about it as much, is the way that these campaigns rolled out often involved third-party endorsements. And that was a big innovation for both of them. They, they would get, depending on what they were trying to argue, they would figure out ways to hire experts in the field to reinforce whatever messaging that they were doing. And they knew that this third-party endorsement idea helped 
sell whatever the the big public relations uh, goal that they were after was. Adam, where is Flying Carpet Theater Company in its development of a play about the history of public relations? Oh, that's a great question, Lois. A couple of years ago, you know, we've been uh, we've been after this holy grail to tell this story somehow um, for a couple of years now. We got invited to uh, the University of Nevada, Reno, to do a workshop, and one of our um, artists, a fellow by the name of David DeVries, who's a wonderful local actor, you've you've I'm sure yes met David over the years. Actually, excuse me, David portrayed Freud in a play at Theatrical Outfit. That's right. That's right. You are right. Um, yeah, so David knows Freud. So we went out and we worked with students to develop some of the material. And we've, I would say, um, we keep coming back to it to figure out how, w- the, the first goal is to have a play that we love. And I would say right now we have half of a play that we like. So we'll, we'll keep working until <laughs> we get to uh, we get a little further along. The thing that uh, during our time in Reno that I was struck by is how many young people were not aware of the codified way in which the press helps us form our public opinions. To a lot of the students we worked with, Lois, this process was a revelation, and it made me yearn for more media awareness in schools because, you know, I don't think people fully understand how much of a machine it is to form our public opinions. Adam Copeland is the artistic director of Flying Carpet Theater Company. You can find the entire Culture Crash series on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Our relationship goes back 15,000 years. That's how long humans and dogs have been friends. Their unconditional love for us is an ongoing inspiration. And that's how Matt Hobbs, musical improviser for Dad's Garage Theater Company, came up with the idea to write weekly puppy songs during quarantine. When I spoke with Matt in May of last year, he explained how he became involved with Dad's Garage. When I moved to Atlanta in 2010, one of the first things I ever did that was cool thing to do in town was go see shows at Dad's Garage. Uh, I was I was fascinated with it. I loved watching the improv shows. But as a musician, I was especially interested in the piano player on the side of the stage who was making up the score, making up the, uh, the songs with the improvisers if they were singing songs. And I was like, I've got to find a way to do that. And so after a couple years of, uh, of seeing the shows, I auditioned and worked my way in in 2012. And for the last eight years, I have been uh, making up songs every weekend at Dad's Garage over there on the side of the stage at the piano. Uh, as well as doing music direction and composing for some of the scripted shows that Dad's has put on. And it has been 
the most fun gig as a musician ever and something wholly unexpected until I until I found it. Oh, well, dads bring so much joy to so many people. How did you come up with the idea to write puppy songs? It's funny because there's two natural resources that exist in our household uh, with my fiance and I and Lenny and Marley, our two dogs. And the two natural resources, one is I constantly walk around and sing songs to the dogs, just little silly things about eating breakfast or whatever the moment may be. And then the other natural resource was videos of dogs on my phone, constantly like, oh, Lenny's doing something cute, let me film that, or Marley's doing something silly, let's film that. And so I, uh, I was getting to the point where I wanted a new project to write short songs and produce different styles of songs. And I was like, well, let's just make the dogs <laughs> put on little sketches and little scenes and make a musical. Uh, and just combining some of the stuff I had lying around and uh, the songs that people make up for their dogs. And, and comments have come through on a lot of the videos where I think a lot of people sing to their dogs, musicians and uh, non-musicians and everyone alike. Matt Hobbs is the creator of Puppy Songs and musical improviser at Dad's Garage. You can find his original songs about dogs on his Instagram, at Puppy Songs. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll learn about C.T. Vivian's memoir, It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Kanavi. And I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.